Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to discuss um, being in the moment, what it, what it means to be in the moment, and, uh, and also what it means uh, to take a, a broader view of things, um, and, and, and how uh, we can try to balance it out, and then also maybe kind of like a, a deeper exploration of what it means to be in the moment, and, um, and, and the, 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 the pros and cons of being in the moment. Um, I'm just sort of laughing at that because um, I, I, I was privileged to uh, talk with uh, someone um, just the other day and he was sort of like giving testimony to this. He's in the, the organic food uh, trade and he was just talking about how just he sees like just this constant bombardment of um, press and articles and everything like that about the greatness of being in the moment. And, and so we've kind of taken it as, as a given that there's absolutely nothing bad about being in the moment. You know, that it's the highest ideal. And in many ways it is, by the way. In many ways it is. And we'll talk about the upside of it also. But I also want to discuss the downside of it, which is not as, as, as commonly expressed. And, and that way we can start to get a more nuanced, more sophisticated understanding of what the Torah view of just... Um, being mindful is. So, so with that in mind, um, let's focus on the, the beginning of uh, Parshas Vayikra, which is also the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, the, the, the book of um, Leviticus in English. Um, and this is coming to tell us that the, the last several Parshas at the end of uh, Shmos Exodus are, are talking about the construction of the Mishkan, which again was the prototype of the, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Beis Migdash. Now we're starting a new book, and we're trying to figure out, okay, now that we have it, how do we use it? So it's also known as Sefer Avodah, the book of heavenly service, because we're figuring out which offerings we bring to atone for what, um, what mistakes, and also the, the offerings are also ways of saying thank you. It's not... The offerings aren't just exclusively to repair something, can just be to say thank you to Hashem and, and, and things like that, or to mark the holidays. Um, there's special offerings for that as well. And what are the, um, the, the, the kahanim, that, that group of Jews were in charge of uh, running the, the, the service in the Mishkan, all direct descendants of Aaron Akohen, um, Moshe's brother. So, so the question is, what's going on with this book? Because it's exceedingly exact. And, and we don't have a temple today. So in, in many ways it seems like way esoteric. And we spend a lot of time studying it too. So let's just have a, just a very, very quick general overview of, of what it is that we're engaged in right now. And so um, I heard someone put it very beautifully that this is the book, this is called... Shechina maintenance. And the idea being that, um, I heard Rabbi Green say one time that sort of the, the classic structure of every uh, sort of romantic story is boy, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, and then boy gets girl in the end. And, you know, many movies end with a, a wedding and things like that. And Rabbi Green said, you know, I'm, that's, that's when the movie ends. That's when I want to start watching. Like, how do they live together? Like, how do they make the relationship actually work? 
That's what I want to know. And so I often think that in life, we have Hashem and Hashem has us. So we're already there. We're already married, so to speak. Now what? Now, now what do we do? You know? So I, I've mentioned before that I, I often, like, when people ask me to describe these talks, I often call it a, a couples counseling between us and Hashem, you know? Because I, I think that that's kind of what a lot of life is, just trying to figure out that relationship. And, and getting back to Vaikra, Shekhinah maintenance. In other words, now that the, this heavenly presence is dwelling with us, how do we maintain the relationship? So, so Sefer Vaikra, the book of Leviticus, is talking about if you do this thing which is wrong, then you bring this. You know what I mean? If you forget the anniversary, then you bring flowers. You know, so it's, I mean, not to dumb it down, but there is this sense of a relationship and, and the rules of a relationship. And by the way, I know that, um, I know that in my marriage with uh, my wife, we, we actually, I don't think we actually sat down and with a pencil or anything so formal or um, weird as establishing rules, but we actually did establish some rules that, that were, were very, very helpful. Like, for instance, and this may sound uh, strange, but I, I'll throw it out since it's worked very well for us. You know, she said to me, and I, I said back to her, you know what, I don't want you having any male friends. And she said back to me, I don't want you having any female friends. And that's worked out very well. You know, it's like you can have people you know and everything like that, but I don't want to walk in and you're on the phone with your new friend that you met Sheila, you know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing making a new friend who's a woman? You know, and like, I don't want to walk in and she's on the phone with her new friend, Doug. Like, what are you talking to him for? You know, oh yeah, I'm meeting Doug for lunch. <laughs> really? <laughs> Why are you meeting Doug for lunch? <laughs> now again, that might sound, you know, and there are other people who are like, let me tell you how enlightened and great a guy I am. I am friends, like really good friends with all of my old girlfriends. You know, you know how great a woman I am? I am like on fantastic terms with all my old boyfriends. And we keep in touch and we talk and everything like that. Okay. I don't think that's great for a marriage. Just putting it out there, you know? And I think that that is one of those nice things, even though it might sound very draconian, very, very harsh, if, if a person is single, they hear that and it's like, whoa, that's like really weird, like, you know, welcome to your middle ages marriage, you know, from like, you know, the 1500s, but I don't know, you know, certain, certain things actually maintain harmony, and, and I offer that as, uh, as, as one, one piece of, uh, uh, experience. And all this, again, is under the category of Shekhinah maintenance. Shekhinah maintenance is the book of Vayikra. It's now that you have the relationship, now that you have the marriage, so to speak, how do you maintain it? How do you keep it from going off track? That's, this, is, this is the great goal. This is the, the, the great idea, to have harmony. And remember, um, just to put everything I was saying about the relationship and marriage into perspective. What does shalom bias mean? What, it does, what does it mean to have peace in the home? Um, 
it means that the Shekhinah, again, that, that's, that's um, you know, we're talking metaphorically here. Kaviyocho, but it means that Hashem's revealed presence is, is, is in your home. That's what Shalom Bias means, right? And Reb Shalomo said one time, m- many people think that Shalom Bias just means that I'm not yelling at you and you're not yelling at me. They think that that's what peace in the home is. He says that's a ceasefire. That's not actually peace. <laughs> peace is a much higher level than that. Right? Peace means that God's presence is actually palpable. It's like, it's, it's like you walk in and you, you, you feel the experience of it. So that's a much, that's a much higher level. And then that's, that doesn't just happen, you know? You know, just a quick aside. Uh, Reb Shlomo was saying in the name of Rebbe Nachman that a person has to have the, the strength. He was talking about a Malik and Purim and everything like that. And he was saying that a person has to have the strength not just to be able to begin a project, but to be able to complete a project. And that's, that takes even more strength to complete a project than to begin a project. And uh, anyway, I don't know why that popped into my head, but, but, but that's, uh, that's something. Okay, so now let's get, back into, let's get back into the beginning of Vayikra. So again, now that we have God and God has us and God's presence is sort of dwelling in the house, that's the Mishkan, that's the Shekhinah, God's revealed presence is in the house. How do we maintain it? What do we do to keep it there and to keep things on the right track, the relationship on the right track? And so Vayikra begins very famously with, um, with, with, with the word Vayikra, but it has this tiny letter Aleph at the end of the word. And we had like a, a fun moment in shul because there, there, by the way, there's so many different explanations of why there's this tiny letter Aleph at the end of Vayikra. And the Megalia Mukos, one of our greatest, greatest Torah commentators from approximately five, 500 years ago, he himself in his book wrote 90 different explanations for the small Aleph. And that's just one person about 500 years ago. So how many explanations of the small Aleph do you think there are? Probably thousands, you know? So, but I'm going to give you the classic, 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 classic one, okay? And believe me, there's zillions, but this is just the, there is no official explanation, but to the extent that there is an official explanation, this is the official explanation, which is that um, without the letter Aleph, Vayikra makes the word Vayikar. Vayikar means just to happen, that, that happenstance, like a coincidence. Like it just so happened that God started speaking to Moshe. So, so the official answer is, is that that's how Moshe wanted it written. Because if you say Vayikra, then that means that that changes the word if you add an Aleph. That means that Hashem called out to Moshe. It was the opposite of happenstance. That means that, that God actually fully intended to talk right to Moshe himself. And Moshe, in his humility, didn't want to portray himself in that way. So he asked Hashem to leave off the Aleph. Okay? So it's just he's kind of downplaying his, his stature. 
And then Hashem said, all right, we'll make it, but we're going to make it, we're going to make it little. Okay? And so as such, it is, if you need a visual representation of Moshe's humility, and remember, Moshe is called the most humble man that ever, ever lived, ever. So if you need a visual representation of Moshe's humility, it's the small aleph of this first word, Vayikra. So somehow I got it into my head. This Shabbos, I said, you know, it must be good to look at it, to see it with your eyes. So everyone at the happy meeting should look at it, you know? Like, because I'm sure it has like this kind of it, maybe it has like this, like this healing effect just to be able to see it, you know? A kosher Torah scroll to see that small olive. So before we started reading, anyone who wanted a look, everyone came up and kind of looked at the little olive. And then we had a guest rabbi from across the street who came in and said, now I'm sure none of you saw the small olive of Vayikra, but let me just describe it to you. And I was just sitting there going, all right, all right, we did something good here, you know. So, and then he gave his whole speech on it. But meanwhile, everyone had actually seen it with their own eyes. He was like, maybe the first person who got called up for the Aliyah may have noticed it. And it's like, meanwhile, like we had like lines of people, you know. So anyway, that aside, if you have a chance to see the small olive, it's worth seeing because it's just like, wow, there it is, you know. Um, so it's, it's a sign of humility. Now, just, I, I just want to say something, just my own little kind of take. It's, it's uh, very short, but, but a lot of people say that coincidences, that there's no such thing as coincidences. Like, like the secular world wants to talk about coincidences all the time. And they say that really, one of the sweet words that I heard one time is that really like a coincidence is God just waving hello to you. Right? Because God really orchestrated it. it. It appears as a coincidence, but that's just God kind of waving hello. So, so we know that the letter Aleph actually stands for Hashem, because Aleph is the number one in Gematria, and God is one. So Aleph, for other reasons too, but Aleph stands for Hashem. So, so Vayikar, remember Vayikra is Vayikar with a tiny little Aleph, sort of like at the end there. So Vayikar means a happenstance, a coincidence. So it's like a little coincidence, and there's the little olive right at the end, sort of waving hello. It's sort of like God saying, it's me. It's me. It wasn't a coincidence. I was there all along. So that's, um, that's my small contribution to the vast literature of the small olive on Vayikra. Now we can continue. So, um, so it's also Hashem whispering. That's what the Me'or Enayim says, that that if you look at the sequence of these words, Vayikra El Moshe, Vayedaber Hashem. Now it says Yudke Vavke. It spells out the full name of Hashem. So, so just to translate that opening passage in English, He, it doesn't say Hashem, it says He, but it means Hashem. He called to Moshe and Hashem spoke to him. So, so the the Chernobyl Rebbe, the Mayor Inayim, says something very, very beautiful. He talks about how one becomes religiously inspired in their life and how Hashem, the process that Hashem takes with a person, that, that Hashem doesn't all of a sudden reveal himself, you know, because that would be a little bit scary. So Hashem first comes to a person in the form of a small olive, 
like almost like on the on the level of whispering. And then later on, he reveals himself as Yudke Vavke. This was me all along. So so Vayikra with the small aleph, that's Hashem coming in a very subtle way with just like a person's, the still small voice inside of you that's starting to wake up a little bit. Vayikra, with the small aleph, El Moshe, he called out, he, not Hashem, he called out to Moshe, and Hashem said. And then all of a sudden, it sort of like builds, and then you realize, oh, that's what's going on with me. That's what's opening up inside of me. You know, one of the most beautiful teachings that I ever heard I, I thought that it was in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, but then I was later told that it was actually said by a, a, a biker in drug rehab with, um, with, with tattoos up and down his arms, you know? I, I guess they call those sleeves, you know? So, so, but I don't know that it's a worse teaching. It might be a better teaching come from, coming from that source, this particular teaching, which is that every single person is created with a God-shaped hole inside of them, Right? So every person is created by design, by God, with a God-shaped hole inside of them. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Probably, probably you have. If you've done a jigsaw puzzle and there's like space in the middle for one, one piece and you try other pieces and none of the other pieces fit. And sometimes you can even try to jam it in, but they don't fit. And then you get the right piece. Ah, and that fits, right? So all of us, every single human being, senses that there's something missing. All of us, everyone in the world, senses there's something missing. And we try to fill it with all sorts of things. Drugs, sex, money, career, you know, entertainment, like exercise. Like all of us try to fill that, that, that God-shaped hole inside of us. But the only thing that actually fills it is God because it's a God-shaped hole. And just to put it in sort of a more kind of like um, uh, present tense bit of imagery, do, do you know what a USB port is? So that's like our USB port, that, that hole there, that God put that there for us to plug into him, right? So that's, that's there on purpose. That's there on purpose. So if a person feels this, this existential yearning, this sense that, that, that I'm not complete, that's accurate. And that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's good if you're sensing that. Because what you're becoming aware of, that's so to speak the, the small aleph. That's the whisper of Hashem. That's, that's, that's you getting in tune with the fact that, that you are actually part of something so much larger. And it's the call to connect. It's the call to plug back in. Okay. So now... I told you I wanted to discuss this idea of being in the moment. And I just saw the most amazing thing. Now, the, the Torah often calls on us to reconcile two opposite ideas, right? So, um, and, and my recommendation is if you, if you want to understand the, the Torah path, especially in a more sophisticated way. When you learn a teaching, a new, especially a new teaching, 
you have to do what I call a 360 around it. Meaning to say, you have to ask yourself, okay, now that I've learned this, what are the, all the situations that I might encounter this idea and how do I apply it in, in all sorts of circumstances? So for instance, let's say I learn this tremendous ideal to tell the truth, to be a person of truth, right? Okay, so I have to tell the truth. Now imagine your grandmother gives you a bowl of soup that tastes terrible. And she asks you, how is it? Is it good? There's only one answer, which is it's delicious. That's the only answer. You don't say, you know, I was listening to this rabbi and he was talking about telling the truth and grandma, you've made better soup. I got to be honest with you. You know, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm sure you were distracted. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure you were very busy. Perhaps you were on the phone. You know, this is not, that's not the Torah path. But you say, but I have to tell the truth. The truth. God's seal is the truth. All that's right. All that's, all that's right. But telling the truth in certain circumstances demands that you acknowledge what the larger truth that's being transacted at that moment the larger truth is your relationship and the love between you and your grandmother at that moment. And to embrace the larger truth of the moment, telling the truth is to lie about the soup. <laughs> now, these, these things are very nuanced, and, and, and you have to be able to know how and when to apply these things. Because you can't... Sometimes you... you you might say, oh, this is one of those occasions when I should say the soup is good, right? But, but I'm talking metaphorically right now in terms of other, other situations. So you have to, you know, often consult a rabbi, like what, what do I do in, in this instance, okay? So that's called doing a 360 around a teaching. Understand that you can't be so literal-minded that you just sort of like are like a bull in a china shop. Right? So you have to know how to apply these things. And that's part of the teaching itself. So, okay. So, so, so let's talk about now being in the moment. Okay? Have to be in the moment. That's big. And, and contemporary society is really, is really trying to impart that ideal right now. In, in a very good way. So let me give you a Torah example of the greatness of being in the moment. So the Sanzer Rebbe, one of the greatest uh, Hasidic masters and tzaddikim ever, had a son named the Shinover Rebbe. Okay? And they asked, after the Sanzer Rebbe passed away, they asked the Shinover Rebbe, um, what, um, what, what, what was the most important mitzvah for your father, to your father? And he said, whatever mitzvah he was doing in the moment, that was the most important one. So again, that's, that's testimony to someone's presence, right? And I also heard that the Vilna Gon, when he sent an emissary to check out the Baal Shem Tov, because remember, the Hasidic movement was very new and considered very radical in its day, and they, they wanted to check out whether they for, were they for real, were they really Yere Shemayim, were they really, was it really a Torah movement, or was it a break-off new religion type of thing, right? Remember, this is coming on the heels of um, Shabbatai Tzvi 
and the whole false messiah disaster that took place, um, you know, in approximately the 1600s. So, so they were very sensitive to anyone who was getting a little too spiritual, right? And it seemed like the Hasidim were getting very spiritual and they wanted to make sure like that this was not a rogue movement within Judaism. So and interestingly, the, 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 the Vilna Gon said, I want you to report back to me how he eats. You know, because again, when a person eats, if a person is really, really tuned in, right? They're very present, you know, and a person doesn't have to eat a lot if they're very present because they're really, you know, there's, a, there's something called emotional eating. A lot of people eat just because it's a comforting act, right? And, or they're bored and they eat or for whatever reason they eat. But a smaller percentage of time a person is eating because they're actually hungry, right? So when a person is really keyed in, they're in the moment, and they eat really with this sense of kedusha that Hashem is feeding me right now, you know? And so that speaks more about a person than a lot of times their ability to know a lot of things. So the, the Vilna Gon wanted to know, how is the Baal Shem Tov eating? That's going to tell me a lot about his character and his level of Yerushalayim. So that's, again, these are all testimonies about being in the moment. Just while we're on the subject of eating and food, let me tell you another story. Um, so, so the Rishon Rebbe, again, one of the greatest um, tzaddikim, um, and he was considered really like the, the, the dean of the Rebbe's at that time, like all the other Rebbe's would come to visit him. So the czar really was against him and trumped up all these charges and actually imprisoned him at a certain period. And, you know, we were talking about the Shekhinah before. When the original Rebbe, they, they, the, the czar charged him with trying to, plotting to overthrow the Russian government that he wanted to be the czar. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous? Right? And I heard from Reb Shlomo the story. You want to hear the story? Amazing story. The 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 original Rebbe was passing through a, a, I guess, a village or some kind of town in Russia. And the townspeople heard that the original Rebbe is coming. And people had so much reverence for him because he was such a, a holy man that at nighttime, they knew where his carriage was going to pass. The, all the people of the town lined up outside by the roadside and they held lit candles like as a, an homage to him. You know, that as he passed through that, you know, they were gathered there with candles. You know, you can picture it in your mind, right? That sight. And not so long after that, the czar went through that same area. And there were like a couple of people with candles. (laughs) And they asked what's going on. And they said, oh, you know, we're sorry you didn't get much of a turnout. But you know something? When the original Rebbe was here, there was a tremendous turnout. And he's like, ah, ah, so the original Rebbe wants to be czar. So it was more complicated than that. But the story does end with the original Rebbe being thrown into prison, some dank Russian horrible prison. And the original Rebbe said that his greatest pain, because it says that the Shekhinah, God's presence, follows you into exile. His greatest pain was that he was bringing the Shekhinah into this dank, disgusting place. 
Can you imagine? A person is being imprisoned, right? And that's what they're thinking about, that God's presence has to be subjected to this environment. So the Rishonar Rebbe was able to escape Russia, and he went to Austria, to a place called Sadegor. And in fact, his son is named the Sadegor Rebbe. So that's, um, that, that's where that comes from, and it's a place in Austria. But when he crossed the border, escaped from the Russians, the Austrians were not great friends of the Jews. So the Austrians are like, what, we're supposed to house this, 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 this rebel, right? This guy who's wanted by this, the, 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 the czarist government? We're, we're going to make an international incident to protect this guy? Why? So, okay, so how far do you have to run? You get, off, you get across the Russian border, like, imagine what that involved, right? And now you're in another country, and the other country doesn't want you. So they go, and they have to figure out a way to get Austria to accept, to accept him as a citizen. So one of the uh, gabais, one of the you know, you know, aides of the, 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 the Rebbe, approaches a assimilated Jew who was in the Austrian government. So this was a man who is not religiously observant and may have rejected observance because that was the period where of the so-called enlightenment. And, um, and he said, listen, you've got, to, you've got to appeal to the government so that the Rebbe can stay here. And the man says back, why? Why should I do this? And so he says, and here's, here's the point of the story. He says, because when the Rebbe eats, he lifts the fork to his mouth. He doesn't bring his face to the fork. Right? So you just have to picture what that is. He brings the fork to his mouth. He doesn't bend his face down to the fork. That was the answer that he gave. And then sometime after that, that minister of government comes back and says, we're going to do whatever we can for the Rebbe. And in fact, they did. And he was protected and stayed in Austria and was safe from the Russian government. And he explained to him the following. He said, you know, after you told me that, I was thinking about it. And I actually had, it was lunch for me. And I went into my chambers and I sat down and I tried to bring the fork to my mouth instead of bending my head to the fork and I couldn't do it. And I thought, any person who can eat with that level of dignity is someone that we have to provide protection for in our government. That this is a great man. And then he said the following. He said, had you told me about a miracle that he had made, I wouldn't have believed it and I would have done nothing. And I'm sure the Rishon Rebbe was responsible for many miracles as well, by the way. And yet here you see that this intense level of character refinement is what may have saved his life, actually. And, and you know, many dynasties, Hasidic dynasties, come from Rishon. So who knows what actually, how history changed, literally, because he brought his fork to his mouth 
instead of his head down to the fork. I mean, this is like, to me, this is when you realize how amazing anything that we do is. How amazing Torah is. How, how it actually transforms reality and history and our lives and the lives of people around us. Because we're so brainwashed into thinking that it's just these big public showy displays of things. And it isn't. It isn't. Okay. So, so, so this is all testimony for being in the moment. And um, so now that's one idea. Now I told you that Torah often asks us to reconcile two opposite ideals. So now let's talk about the, the other side of this. Okay? So the Jikov Rebbe, the, the Imre Noam, brings a very interesting teaching from Perkei Avos. It says that in Perkei Avos, if a person wants to stop themselves, to protect themselves from doing anything wrong, they should consider three things. One, where a person comes from, the humble origins of a person, a, 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 a single drop. Two, where a person is going. That's a grave, right? Six feet under, right? And then who a person is going to have to give testimony to? Hashem. And if a person considers their past, where they come from, where they're going to, and then the distant future. So, in other words, Hashem's name, the Yudke Vavke, is a contraction of three words. Haya means was, Hove means is, and Yia means will be. It's an expression of infinity. Was, is, and will be. And interestingly, Hashem's name is a verb. God is a verb in Judaism, not a noun. What's the difference? Just a side point, but interesting. See, if, imagine I'm telling you all the things there are in the world. I say, well, there's football, and there's pencils, and there's Florida, right? And there's corned beef, and there's God, and there's cement. And it's like, well, wait a second, back up a second. What, what, what was number five there? <laughs> well, there's God. No, no, no. God is not one thing on a list of things that exists. Everything exists within God. Right? So if a lot of people think that God is a noun. <laughs> God is just something that's out there among the many things that are out there. It's like, and if I got time for God... After I do the other things on my list, okay, I'll make a little time for God. That's God as a noun. That's God as just one thing on a list of things. But no, there's a, everything is contained within God. And God is a verb, which is why Judaism wants us to take actions. It doesn't want us just to have good intentions. There was a period in history, I don't hear it very often anymore, they would call them cardiac Jews. People who were like Jews in their heart, right? So that's nice. That's beautiful. I'm not, you know, nothing against it. But the, the, the full vision of Torah is someone who takes an intention or a thought and brings it onto the verb level into action. So that mitzvot, when you're doing mitzvot, you're actually transacting God. God is being like, 
Like the world is the God exchange and you're on the floor, right? So like everything is being transacted. That's God as a verb. So that's the, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. Okay. So, so the Jikava Rebbe is saying that basically what this teaching from Pirkei Avos is telling us is that if a person has their past, their present, and their future before them at all times, then they're not going to come to do anything wrong. All right? And now he makes a, a brilliant insight. He says, this small aleph, this small aleph, what's it missing? And he quotes a Zohar that says that, you see, aleph is like a play on words. Because aluf, aluf or alufe is a, 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 the word for a chief. Okay, like the head. So Aleph, like one of the names of Hashem is the Aluf Sha'olam, the chief of the world. Okay, so here you see the Aleph is small. So somehow we've made God small. How did we make God small? Or, or more exactly, the revelation of godliness small. Because God is so infinite and beyond, then we, don't, we never negatively impact him right? Ultimately, on the deepest level, right? God remains God and God remains perfect even if we're, you know, on some kind of binge of one kind or another. But, but at the same time, the revelation of God is made small. So, so this small Aleph means that we've sort of negatively impacted God's revelation on some level. So the Jikova Rebbe points out that the letter Aleph is actually composed we, we know this from other places, of three letters. But he's going to make an extra point here. So we know that Aleph is, is spelled with a Yud on top, and then a Vav, and then a Yud on the bottom. So why is this Aleph small? So the Jikava Rebbe says, because we took away one of the Yuds. And how does he know that? Because the remaining letters are Vav and Yud then. If you take away one of the yuds, what's left over is a vav and a yud, which adds up to the number 16, which is the gematria of the word hove, which means now. Meaning to say that a person's consciousness just got caught up in the now. And because they just got caught up in the now and they didn't think about where they've been and where they're going and all there is is right now, then they did something wrong. So now we have to explore this. So what I've just told you is the greatness of being in the moment, right? right? Because everything is being transacted in the moment. But the other thing that a person has to have in mind is that if you're only in the moment and you've forgotten where you come from and where you're going, then you can do anything wrong. Right? This is the whole kind of See, it's kind of funny because usually it's very high-minded spiritual people who are saying, be in the moment, be in the moment. But the reality is, is that being in the moment can be absolutely a call to hedonism. Like, be in the, be, be in the moment, meaning hedonism means that um, basically uh, lustful behavior. That would be sort of a shorthand. So in other words, hedonism means that Basically, you know, I've got no future and, you know, it basically let's just enjoy this life to, to, the, to the greatest extent. Wine, women, and song because tomorrow 
who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm going to be under the ground and that's the end of me. Right? So, so we say you live forever. We actually believe we all live forever because the soul goes on. And by the way, it's very important that everyone understands that the soul doesn't just disappear into the oneness of God. The soul is like your software. Your body is like your hardware. Your soul is like your software with all of your information imprinted on it, right? And then when the soul leaves the body, it's still you. It's 100% still you with your personality and your memories and, and everything, all your actions. It's still you. And then you remain just in bodiless form forever. Forever. So this is, you know, we talk about immortality, but we're, we've got it. We, we have that. You know, the body part. At a certain point, you know, like uh, Rebbe Nachman's last words, apparently, um, where he just kind of like, you know, brushed his shoulder with his fingers and just said, I don't need this anymore. You know, so... Anyway, we should all live to 120 in health and everything like that. But, but we, we keep on living is the point. We, 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 we're not going anywhere. So, you know, the truth is, is that if you're not going anywhere, then, then there is no escape anyway. So then you might as well make the most opportunity of having a body. Because there are things that we can do with a body that we can't do when we don't have a body. So it's like not to think that, oh, so I live forever anyway. No, it's sort of like, I've got a limited window of opportunities of being in a body. I've got to take advantage of absolutely all of them. The Vilna Gon famously on his deathbed held up his tzitzis and he was looking at them and he was crying. And they said to him, why? And he said, because with a few pennies in this world, I can do this incredible mitzvah and I'm not going to have that opportunity in a few moments. If an angel pushes over a chair, you know what happens to the chair? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Really. If we push over the chair, it falls down. It's like there's a, there's a level of cause and effect, but it's a limited window. It's a limited window. That's why there's such a Yetzirah. That's why there's such a temptation for us to fritter, fritter away these unique opportunities. Because our power is so great right now to do anything, to do anything. Anything and everything is a contribution, especially at this stage of Jewish history. Jewish history is like God hit a giant reset button and it's all of a sudden like, you know, thousands of years of knowledge. All of a sudden you've got an entire generation of people who don't know anything, including myself. Nothing. Anything that you can do is, is a legitimate contribution, even if it's really small. Okay, I'm making a flyer for an event and I'm putting it on this pole. Huge. Actually huge. Actually huge. You know, I, 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 I had this, I'll just tell you, I wasn't intending on telling this story, but, but just because I mentioned that. So, I don't want to mention any names, but someone who's a very, very successful screenwriter, major films out here in Hollywood, you know, observant, keep shops. So years later, you know, I saw him in Israel and 
he said, yeah, you know, I was in New York and I figured, you know, I'm in New York. Um, I, I'll give, maybe I'll give a talk. So I asked the show, I said, can I give a talk? They said, yeah, go ahead, give a talk. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I figured I'd talk about Hollywood. So I wrote, I made a flyer. And there was a guy who, you know, was, you know, kind of out of work and just odd jobs. He did odd jobs. So I said to him, can you kind of just put this flyer around the neighborhood? And he's like, okay. So this guy tells me years later that he was in college. He was interested in a career in Hollywood. He's had quite a career. He saw this flyer. He said, oh, it says Hollywood and Judaism. I'm, I'd like to go to Hollywood. I'm Jewish. Maybe I'll go. So he ended up attending the class. He said that that was the first time he had ever walked into an Orthodox shul. I mean, you know, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, and how many people has he inspired? So I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that literally anything that you do, someone came up to me and they, they were thanking me so much for something. And I had no recollection of what it is that I had done. And you know what? It turns out we were able to actually isolate it. I had gotten an email that I thought that they might be interested in, and I just forwarded it to them. And then they ended up forwarding it to someone else, and then it turned out to be like a meaningful thing, you know? So really anything, literally anything that you do, which is inspiring and depressing, <laughs> depressing because that's where we're at, but inspiring because it's like, imagine you're like, like walking on this plowed, fertile field, you know, like, have you ever seen like rich dirt where people plant things? Like, it's like really, it's brown and it's moist and it's dug up and it's, it's like earth. You really feel earth, you know? Imagine you're just walking around with a handful of seeds and we're, you're just like kind of throwing seeds. Like wherever you walk, you're just like throwing seeds. You, you'd be amazed. Like things are going to like rise up. Like trees are going to rise up around you just from one word or one email forward or something like that. One of my favorite stories while we're talking about flyers. So there was a, a guy who, um, who uh, became a big um, teacher of uh, like business executives. Like uh, there are certain uh, organizations where you, if you, let's say you're an executive and you don't have time to like go to shul or whatever it is and maybe you're not, um, you know, maybe you're just starting to learn a little bit of Torah you can call up one of these places and they'll send someone to your office like a, like a really good high quality teacher during your lunch break, you know, however often you want to do it, once a month, once a week, whatever it is. He'll come to your office and he'll teach you. He'll, you, you can learn with him. It's a very good program. A lot of people have done this program. So one of the top people in New York who, who does this, meeting with like top executives in New York City, right? So, so um, how, how did he get his start? So he, he wasn't, he didn't grow up observant or anything like that. And he was working on an anti-religious kibbutz in New York, in Israel rather, right? Not, not because he hated religion or anything like that, just, you know, religion was not a priority and he wanted to be in Israel and this kibbutz was one of the ones that he liked. So he was working there, you know, whatever it is. So some 
guy who is religiously observant decides that I'm going to advertise this Torah class and I'm going to go to this anti-religious kibbutz, right? That took a lot of chutzpah, like holy chutzpah. So he goes and he hands the flyer to this guy. So you think it's the guy in the story that I'm telling you. It's not that guy. That guy takes the flyer and throws it in the garbage. The guy who I described, who's the teacher in New York, his job was emptying out garbage cans. So while he's emptying out a garbage can, he sees this flyer and he goes, oh, this sounds like a good class. I'm thinking of, you know, I've done my time on this kibbutz anyway, I'm ready for something new, maybe I'll check this out. And then he goes to the class and he says, you know, this place that was offering the class isn't for me, but I kind of like this stuff. I'll go and look for another school. And then he found another school, and then that was the school for him. So can you imagine? How many lives has he, like, impacted? Because this guy went and handed a flyer that got thrown in a garbage can. So anything, anything that we do. Okay, so now let's get back to the Jikover. So the Jikover is saying, you see, so... So, so what's interesting and what, what we can have a more nuanced view now of what it means to be in the now, to be present, to understand all the opportunities that are open to you. Like, remember, we say, there's a very strong principle in Torah, that Hashem is creating and recreating the universe every single moment. That means every single moment is the opportunity for a fresh start. Right? And it means that the, on some level, like I once saw this, it was like a lyric from a song from the, the Clash, right? This rock band that says, the future is unwritten. Right? So we know where our destiny is bringing us. And, you know, Hashem explains through the prophets that the, Hashem is evolving the, the world and, and, and humanity toward, toward this era of perfection that we shorthand with the term Mashiach. Right? So we know where things are going. But a moment from now, there's a zillion different variables that are being factored in, and it can go in any direction whatsoever. So on some level, the future is unwritten. And a lot of it is dependent on what actions and what decisions we make. Right? How we get to that destined future, how we get there, is largely up to us. Right? But it's the moment that if Hashem is creating and recreating the universe every single moment, then every single moment is a genuine fresh start, a real fresh start, a real brand new world. Not, not a joke, for real, right? So then you can steer creation in, in any direction. That's, that's amazing. That's part of the power of now. On the other hand, though, the Jikover is pointing out that the small Aleph why is Aleph, which stands for Hashem, made small? Because it's lacking the Yud. And so that small Aleph, the Vav and the remaining Yud, adds up to 16, which means now. By only thinking about the now, and forgetting about where I came from, and where I'm going, and who I'm going to have to give testimony before, I can just say, well, now I'm in the mood for this. <laughs> and now I'm in the mood for that. And now I'm not in the mood for this. And now I'm not in the mood for that. And so just being in the now can actually lead a person down the wrong path.
So, so now these are now the opposites that a person has to simultaneously balance. The ability to see their entire life before them, where they've been and where they're going. And then within that framework, zero in and be completely present for all the opportunities that are available right now. And maybe not a moment from now. So this is the great balancing act that Torah asks us to, to do. Now I want to go further into another, another aspect of what it means to be in the now. Bless you. What does it mean to be in the now? Now listen to this beautiful teaching. I saw this from Rabbi Friend. The beginning of Vayikra is opening up. Remember, Moshe Rabbeinu is now going into the Mishkan, into the tabernacle, and this is going to be the beginning of, of the tabernacle, the, 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 the service of the Mishkan. So Moshe Rabbeinu comes in, and this voice that Hashem calls to him, if you look at the Rashi there, it says it was a booming voice. Now, now it goes into more detail. It says, how booming a voice is it? A voice that's so booming, it can snap cedar trees. Excuse me, snap cedar trees in half. Now, you know, like, like when someone sings like a high C note, you can sort of like, crack a glass, right? Imagine what a voice has to sound like to snap a tree in half, <laughs> right? That's, I mean, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know how I could survive that. Like if I heard that, I would, I, maybe i die. I don't even know what would happen to me. So it says that the sound of Hashem's voice was this booming voice. Now here's the amazing thing. They said, Outside the walls of the Mishkan, no one heard it. So they say, okay, so how does that work exactly? So, you know, I just have to tell you this other teaching, just because I love it so much, and it's related. So this is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This explanation is, the teaching itself is from the Medrash. It says that when Hashem spoke at Mount Sinai, Right? So that's Hashem's voice. Now this is one that we could all hear, right? because that was the greatness of speaking at Mount Sinai. Hashem spoke and millions of people heard. Right? And that's different from every other religion. Every other religion like, has their key person, and God spoke allegedly to that person, and then he says to everyone else, trust me. Right? And then he speaks later to another person and says, yeah, trust me now. Like, it's just to one person, and then each person says, yeah, he didn't really do it to the other people, <laughs> only to me. <laughs> or he changed his mind. Or It's really dicey. It's really dicey. The greatness of Mount Sinai is God spoke, and approximately two and a half million people all heard the same thing, right? Not only all heard the same thing, but then changed their lives amazingly. Because you have to realize, these people had been slaves, us, we had been slaves for a couple of hundred years. And all of a sudden, we took on the Torah mitzvot, which was a radical lifestyle change. Now, just in terms of psychology and sociology, if you've just been slaves for generations, you know what I'm going to do afterwards, if I get free? 
I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do this complicated series of things. That's the last thing that I'm going to do. So just to, for you to see, just his, from, from a historical standpoint, the miraculousness of this, that this group of people, this large group of people, this, essentially this mob of people, all of a sudden steps in line and does this incredibly intricate series of things, elevated things. These were slaves, elevated series of things, controlling their desires in all sorts of ways. Why would they ever do that unless they experience something absolutely unbelievable? Unless they literally heard God talk, which is what we say happened. Okay? So, so here's the teaching. It says that when God spoke, there was no echo. Now, the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains it the following way. What is the nature of an echo? Let's just talk basic science, right? An echo is when sound waves bounce off of something that it's not. Right? So, like, so the wall is not made out of sound waves. So if I speak with a really loud voice, the sound waves are going to bounce off something it's not, which is the wall, and it will bounce back and you'll create this sound called, that we call an echo, right? That's, that's, that's what an echo is. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, do you know why the Medrash is teaching us that when God spoke, there was no echo? Because there's nothing that isn't made out of God. <laughs> So it literally didn't hit anything that it's not. <laughs> That's another just like, you know, got the chills just thinking about that. You know, it's just, wow. Just the infinity of God, right? Okay, so now we have our question again. You've got the booming voice inside of the Mishkan, and yet right outside of the Mishkan, you can't hear it. <laughs> so what's going on? So you could say that there was a miracle and you could say that Hashem just miraculously stopped his voice. And I'm okay with miracles. That's a fine explanation for me. I have no problem with that. But Rabbi Fran brings in the name of the Bali Musser another explanation, which is very, very special. And again, we're trying to answer the question on a deeper level. What does it mean in the Torah context to be present, to be here, so to speak, to be in the now? This is uh, from the positive, from the positive side, okay? So he says, no, people could hear the voice. It's just that they didn't because it was on a very high spiritual plane. And we have this example in nature. Everybody knows that there are certain, like things like dog whistles, for instance, certain pitches that say animals can hear that we can hear. So we know this is a documented phenomena in nature, in the natural world. So it is in the spiritual world that, that that voice actually could be heard outside the tent. But someone had to be on a super rarefied, elevated level in order to be able to hear it, and no one was on that level except Moshe. And then he brings another teaching from Pirkei Avos, which says that to this day, right now, right now, the call from Mount Chorev, 
Chorev is a different name for Mount Sinai, is still being broadcast. And essentially, woe to the world that they don't hear it. In other words, the, the voice from Mount Sinai actually never stopped. And woe to us that we can't hear it. Meaning to say that if a person climbs up and they, right, then they're able to hear. Okay, so now let's apply this teaching further on a more practical level. So I heard a story, it's a famous story, it's even, they write it up in children's books and things like that, about the Brisker Rav. Brisker Rav was, you know, maybe our greatest Talmudist of the last, you know, certainly the last hundred years, maybe more, and the style in which, you know, like the great yeshivas around the world today are all pretty much in the style of, that the Brisker Rebbe pioneered, you know. And uh, so here's the story. Someone was, uh, the Brisker Rav was given a, a shear and, and, uh, and to the congregation, and someone about Pesach, right, someone raises their hand and says, is it permissible to have four cups of milk instead of four cups of wine. And so he then invited this person to his Seder. And someone asked, like, you know, what's going on? Right? Because I guess this was a person who, I mean, whatever it was, it was surprising that he did that. So he says to him, the person who asked, basically, did, I, don't know, I don't know that he said, didn't you hear? But he said, if he's asking me about having milk, that means that he doesn't have enough money to have meat at his Seder. Right? Because you don't mix milk with meat. You don't serve milk at a meat meal. So if he doesn't have enough money to have meat at his Seder, that means that he doesn't have enough money for his Seder. That means he needs a Seder to go to. So I invited him to my Seder. So in other words, the guy was just asking a question that someone else who was like very academic may have said, well, that's a very interesting question. Can you have milk instead of wine? You know, what's the status of wine? What's the status of milk? Is it really that you just need four cups? Well, if you just need four cups, then maybe you could substitute it with something else. Right, like for instance, when you make Havdalah, you're supposed to make Havdalah over wine or grape juice or something like that. But you can also do it with one of the national products. So you can do Havdalah with Coca-Cola. And you just make Sha'akol on it. Right? So there are ways to substitute. There are certain categories where you can substitute. So, um, so he could have treated it like a very academic question. But he heard what the person was actually saying. See, the question is, are you seeing what you're seeing? And are you hearing what's actually being said? If someone serves you like a dish, right? Let's say, like, you know, your loved one serves you some chicken or whatever it is and asks you, do you like the chicken? What they're saying to you is not, does it taste good? They're saying... Do you know how much I put into making this chicken? I, I did a lot. So the answer is, you know something? Not, yeah, it tastes good. No, thank you so much. You did so much. It's an opportunity to appreciate the person. 
right? Not, oh, do you like the chicken? You know, it could use a little more salt. <laughs> that is not the conversation that needs to be had at that moment. Really, really, it's like, you know something? It's like, you went to the market, you waited in line, you, you, you thought up a recipe, you knew that I like this thing, you bought these other ingredients, right? You put so much time into it, it looks so beautiful. Rabbi Shlomo said one time, if someone stops you on the street and asks you what time it is, they're not asking you for the time, they're asking you, what should I do with my life? You think that they need to stop you to ask you what the time it is? They can't find out the time from someone else? Okay, have a good week.